Hello, Endurance Peoples. We have a great episode for you today. We have Chris Brown, a.k.a. Chris Bob Brown. He joins us on the show. And for the first about 12 minutes, we built some rapport, specifically around the restaurant industry, which Chris isn't uh, a legit expert on. So sometimes I just can't help myself. I got to learn more. And and this was no exception. So for the first about 12 minutes, that's what we talk about. Um, but Chris, along with being an expert in the restaurant industry, is also an expert in running and endurance training. And he is specifically an expert in running for a long, long time and sometimes between obstacles. So Chris, he is an ultra athlete, Spartan pro team member and a coach who has seen success in many many distances, including a top 10 finish in Western States and a dominating performance during the Tahoe Spartan ultra in 2019. So we do a deep dive on how to learn from the signals that your body are send, sending you to help you problem solve during a long race, the difference in mindset and performances and different distances and how to mentally and physically prepare for an ultra race. Uh, so it was awesome. It was much more of a conversation than an interview, which is great. It's very enjoyable for me. So I really liked it. It was great. And Chris is an awesome dude, very engaging, very entertaining. So let's get it. Chris Brown. We're recording. Chris Brown, hello. Howdy. What's going on? Caught you mid-sip. I told you we're starting. You and sure like, did. You and could I, relax. I also just noticed um, that I, there is quite literally a rat in this room with me somewhere. Um, so <laughs> so that, should be, that should keep me nice and relaxed. We yeah, want I, it to be as tense of a situation as possible. During this I, will be, I will be literally on my toes during this. <laughs> um, well, cool. Well, I'm, I'm excited to dive into some uh, some of the goods, but first, I have some questions for you that we call it the rapport round. Are you ready? I'm ready. So what is your favorite chain restaurant with a caveat that it's like a chain restaurant where you must sit down and like the food is brought to you? Do you know that I'm in the restaurant industry? I like only because you told me like five minutes ago. Yeah, I, I, I own a restaurant here in Santa Barbara. No way. So if you want, like we could do... We could do a two and a half hour podcast just talking restaurant stuff, man. I got well. That's stories. even that's even better. That's perfect. But so now we you need to slum it a little bit. Well, what's your restaurant? What kind of restaurant do you have? I own uh, well. So I am um, I own part of a Cuban restaurant in Santa Barbara, not the Cuban part. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm working my way out of it. Uh, but um, yeah, me and me and two uh, longtime friends and um, cook buddies opened up a spot here in Santa Barbara. It's gotta be a grind, right? Dude, tell me about it. That's, uh, I've been in the restaurant industry for a long time. Um, I having the opportunity to own a spot was, you know, a dream come true, more like a nightmare come true. Like I knew that it was going to be horrible. Um, and I was right. And so I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm working on getting out of it. The two guys with whom I own it are, are you know, lifelong buds of mine and there's no hard feelings or anything, but um, we are under, undergoing the process of getting me out of there so that I can be, you know, a healthy human again. That's good that there's no animosity because you feel like it would almost be impossible. Like going into business with anybody, it just seems like, all right, well, you're going to hate each other at the end. So that's kind of a win. <clears throat> well, yeah, even if you don't hate each other, which is, I'd say, most often the case, it tends to turn, it tends to, um, to ruin the friendship. And even mm. if that doesn't mean getting all the way to the point of animosity, it at least uh, kind of sucks the joy away and turns it into a pure business relationship. So I think the best thing you can have at the end of it is like a really healthy uh, business relationship. Like you can really, you know, have a good relationship with a coworker, but um, it, it definitely takes the joy away from it a little bit. Yeah. I try to avoid it to the extent that I can. And, 
And I think getting out of it when I am is a, a, a good step towards preserving those relationships. But um, yeah, I mean, it's tough. Probably need some space to breathe for a while. I'm like, we'll hang out eventually. <laughs> yeah, it's tough to like, it's tough to have, um, I mean, with anyone, but like people who are really important to you and then you're just going through horrible shit every day, day after day. Like it's really hard to, um, and, and you know, there's a, a million things on your communal to-do list all the time. And it's really tough to see those people and be like, Hey man, how's it going? Cause you know, it's not good. And you know, all the <laughs> shit that both of you have to do. And you know, that like things, you know, the, as good as a restaurant could possibly be going there, there are still going to be things that are going wrong. So there's just something about like, you see the person, um, you're working with and you're just like, yeah, I like, we have so much shit to do. Like there's no time to have fun right now. Like, like you said, there is always so many moving pieces and there's got to be something that's going wrong. How do you know if a restaurant's doing well? Like, it seems like it's, it's a crapshoot, at least from the outside as just straight up consumer, you think a restaurant is doing well. It's like busy. I, I, like the food's great. And like, it's closed, you know, like yeah. it's hard to tell when it's a, 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 a good venture so you mean you mean how do you know if it's doing well from the outside no from like the inside like like how do you got like is there is it straight numbers based or is it morale based or is it just a feeling of it man there is so much to go into there um so um well restaurants have changed a lot the culture in restaurants has changed a lot i would say even in the last like five to ten years restaurants um historically uh, and, and like recent history, you know, since uh, let, let's say restaurants became kind of culturally important in the way that they are now in like maybe the eighties, nineties, like when French cuisine started coming into like when I guess creative and probably French cuisine started coming in the United States and it wasn't just like, you know, meat and threes. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, everything's always been based on the French brigade system. Right. Uh, which is a technical term, but it means that um, kitchens are run like the military. Um, There's no real conversation in there. Everything is, you know, fire this, we chef, fire that, we chef. It's all jargon, um, communication, super regimented. Um, So, Hmm. and I'm getting at one of the ways you can tell if a restaurant is going well or not. Um, So that, that's uh, as you might expect, um, it's that's kind of falling apart or at least it, it's not so much falling apart, but it's being questioned. It's being rethought like as a whole, as an industry. Y- yes. So okay. the value of mental health was yeah. never, um, never talked about. It was never a priority in restaurants until very, very recently. And so now there's all these chefs who are like, uh, and people in restaurants generally who are questioning it, who are like, you know, why, why, why in the fuck do we have to be, you know, why is it that the only way you can measure success as an individual in a restaurant is by how hard you work, how many hours you work? Like, why are we bragging about it? It's the same with a lot of other, you know, work-related cultures. But, like, everything in the restaurant industry is how badly did you get chewed out and how many hours did you work? And those are measures of success, hmm. right? Like, the worse it is for you, the more proud you are of it. That's how restaurants have always been. And it's being rethought. Um, and, and there's a big push towards making restaurants more emotionally sustainable places. So, all right. So one of the ways you like measure the success of a restaurant is, you know, the extent to which 
you can have a good time while you're working there. It's fair. Um, so there are, I would say there are plenty of places that shut down, not because they're not doing well financially, but because um, they aren't, they don't have a system that's sustainable for the people that work there. Mm. Um, meanwhile, there's other places that, that are, are working toward that, or, or maybe they're not, but um, there are places that uh, are full every night um, that are, that kind of seem expensive that put a lot of work into managing labor and food cost and everything. Um, and it's just still not there. Like the best case scenario, uh, a restaurant's profit margins are insanely slim. Like I heard about, I, I was, I heard about the books at this really, really popular, um, somewhat famous now and super hip restaurant in LA and they're doing 14% uh, as a profit margin. Huh. Um, and you might hear that as, you know, if you're someone who like works for a tech company or, or anything else, you might hear 14%. That's really slim. That seems dangerous. And I hear 14% and I'm like, holy fuck. They're they making money? <laughs> rushing. Yeah. Like a successful restaurant is probably four or 5%. That's like, that defines a successful restaurant. So yeah. the, the, the point is like, man, it can be busy. It can be slow. It like, there's just no way to tell because, um, it's, it's just so tough, man. There's like, there's a million things you spend money on and then there's a million people who've come in and it's like the math comes down to just such a tight, uh, it's, it's just to the wire every time. And it's, it's so unpredictable and, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough scene, man. It like, I couldn't imagine with the profit margin, like trying to get it right, just how much you're balancing inventory and just the fluctuation of like the, of people coming in and out and the other dependents like pandemics that, that pop up. How you, how you guys holding up? Um, you know, they're throwing out a bunch of statistics. Like I, I heard recently 85% of restaurants are not going to make it through the pandemic. I I don't think that's true. Yeah, based on what? They're just like saying stuff like eh, 85. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's some math behind it, but like there there's more to be done, but there the government has certainly been kind to restaurants so far. Mm. Um I think most of us are in a position where if um if we act properly, we can get a pretty good amount of government subsidy, which all has to go to labor, um or pretty much all of it has to go to labor. Um, and then you can kind of, everyone's having to revise their business models to be more, um, streamlined, simpler. Um, so you can have a uh, smaller staff for that. You're going to be doing fewer numbers because maybe you can only seat outside. You can do fewer right. guests per night, but you can, you can match that with labor. Um, you know, food costs remains relatively static no matter how many people you're doing. So like streamlining it plus some subsidies and like, it seems it's certainly not ideal and no one would want to open a restaurant in those conditions. But like, I think a lot more than that are going to make it out. There's going to be a lot of places to close. We're not going to, we're going to be fine. Nice. We're treading, treading water, but it's, you know, cool. We'll make it. Yeah. No, there'll be some innovation that comes out of this. If that is something that is part of the the process moving forward is just being a little bit lighter, being a little slimmer or whatever it is, like there will be things that, positive to come out of this whenever that is totally i think there's a lot of places that are not going to reopen for dine-in especially i'm thinking like i'm walking around in santa barbara and I, there's like a there's a vietnamese spot that's doing uh you know like sandwiches and pho and stuff and um there's always this like old lady in there who owns the joint and, and um you see her in there now and she's just like 
you know, it's a small dining room and she's just in there like watching TV and handing bags to people. <laughs> orders. I'm like, oh shit, this, she is right now realizing that she never wanted dine-in. This is what I wanted. Yeah. This is what she wanted. It's my yeah. downgrade. Yeah. I think it's, I think that's going to happen. This is um, the rapport round. These are supposed to be quick questions. No, it's rapport. We can go as deep as we want, but usually we do like to cap it. So uh, we'll, we'll move on because people came here to learn, to learn about some ultra training, but you didn't answer the actual question. What was it? What's like your favorite chain restaurant that you would sit um, down in? Yeah, in and out for sure. Are you kidding? That, no, but that doesn't count, does it? Like you order at the counter. I'm thinking like Applebee's, like uh, some place that you go. Order it. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, shit, I thought you were going to, yeah. Uh, by the way, if you if you go through the drive-thru, you're a scumbag. Just, uh, who goes through that? Disgusting. Facts. Um, sit down. Oh, man. Uh, it's probably – I don't do that that often. In and out's like my one – fast food spot that I'll go to. Is that uh, just what everyone, everyone from the West coast just feels obligated. Is there some contract you guys sign something that like, Hey, if anyone asks you about fast food, like talk about in and out, talk about how great it is. Shit on all the East coast stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and then, I, mean, I, won't, I won't shit on the East coast stuff, but it, it is genuinely good. It is um, good. I did. I do go when I, when I'm out there, <clears throat> uh, sit down. Uh, you know, I'll just, I'll just throw in another California plug and may give you a, a general answer. And that's any, any Mexican food, uh, in Santa Barbara, it's a surprisingly good Mexican food town. So if I'm looking like, uh, it's not a chain restaurant answer. I, you know what? We're moving, we're moving, we're moving on. on. This is over. This is, this is the, the, all right. Great job through the report round. So Thank let's, you. uh, let's just give, uh, the listeners an idea a bit more about who you are as an athlete and as a coach. Sure. Yeah. So I am, um, I guess, Primarily an ultra runner, uh, ultra trail athlete. I do um, really anything. I'm kind of going. This might be a a, um, a a reference that some of the OCR athletes won't get, but I kind of go the Ian Sharman model. He's a, a really well regarded ultra runner, and he he's a specialist in anything from the half marathon to the hundred and plus mile uh, races. So being fit for everything has always been a priority for me. But if I were, if I were to say I'm good at one particular kind of range, it's probably the 50 K to hundred K thing. So I run for Hoka uh, and rabbit um, and goo and dry max and squirrels, nut butter and stuff. But I also, um, I also am on the Spartan pro team. So I dabble in some obstacle course racing. Uh, I got into that. Uh, I actually ran one of the first Spartans ever back in like, oh, oh, 2010, maybe. Hmm. Um, Maybe, no, it was probably 2009 in Malibu. Um, And so I kind of dabbled for a while in that. I ended up running a race in Sacramento and uh, I raced against Hobie Call and Hunter McIntyre in what I think was his first race. Um, And I finished right between those two. No way. Uh, It's like a total... I have this cool photo of me and Hunter and Hobie back in like huh. 2010. And it's like, you know, Hobie wasn't, I mean, he was being flown around by the company at that point, but he wasn't like, you know, famous like he right. became. Hunter either. Yeah. Yeah. No, Hunter was just starting. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I try to do a little bit of everything. Um, but yeah, mostly ultra. That's my specialty. That's my, what I'm into the most. Yeah. And that's what I found interesting about you because like you do have such a pedigree when it comes to ultra, like when you look at your, uh, like your finishes, you're always in the top, like you win a bunch of races, like you were top, um, you were 10th and 13th at Western States in consecutive years. So like, what is it about you wanting to span into other things? And like last year you took OCR, like 
seems like fairly seriously. Like when you went to a bunch of races, you traveled quite a bit for it. So like, why are you branching out into other things? Like, why do you do like the Ian Sharman method where you want to be, um, a, a generalist for lack of better words? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm a lifelong runner, run like, and events of a variety of distance and, and discipline have always been, uh, interesting. And I mean, the reason I'm doing Spartan stuff is it's so fucking fun, dude. Are you yeah. kidding? Uh, it's so fun and it's such a grind. Like I do hundred mile races and Spartan races are so hard to me. Um, and there's just something really beautiful about how difficult they can be. Um, if you give it all you got, mm-hmm. um, it's almost like in a triathlon. Well, I mean, it's much like in a triathlon when you, uh, because of the fact that you're switching disciplines, you end up kind of able to give more to it because you're not stressing one muscle group so much that just gives out and then your race is over. Um, the fact that you have to use everything in a Spartan race, again, if you push yourself, that gets you to the finish line feeling more exhausted than I think you can in, in, in just a running race, which I think is super cool. Um, it's a really fun challenge. Now that's not to say that, that it's not the case that 99% of people who are doing Spartan races are just out there doing or taking selfies. So, yeah. you know, that's, that's tough. I'm a, I, every time I'm out there, I'm just like, you guys, you realize how rewarding this would be if you were trying hard, but I'm just shit talking now. <laughs> a little bit, but that's okay. I'll join in. And it's always like when they, people complain about the courses not being hard enough. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like <laughs> run harder. Like, yeah. yeah. If you think harder. this isn't hard enough, like you're not trying hard enough because like, this is plenty freaking hard no matter if it's one sandbag or two sandbags or whatever it is like it is ultimately hard and is that is that just kind of how you're wired or has that always been something that you wanted to, to take on like a bigger challenge it, and wanting it to be hard i guess the initial thing that was compelling about spartan uh or obstacle races in general was that i found again this is back in 2010 i found what i identified at the time to be a loophole where they had these races that were um, sort of designed to uh, to appeal to was CrossFit even a thing then? You know what I mean though. It was yeah, designed to, was. to yeah. appeal to like you know the gym goer, energy drink, gym mm-hmm. goer, uh, professional rest, like the the type of people who were doing these things were like big, buff, and tough. Yeah, and I you know I'm, I'm a runner. I'm, like a relatively lean dude. And I could just go in and clean up at these things. So I did one with a group of friends just for fun. And I, and it was just hilarious that like a group of cross country runners came in and just destroyed all these guys who thought they were did fit. You, did you destroy everybody? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Uh, it, they've made the obstacles a little harder since then, I think. Um, and, oh, but really what's changed is the athletes. Like mm. I did a few of them. I dominated with the exception of um, Hunter who, I you know barely beat and Hobie who beat me pretty handily, um, and then I took a long hiatus and then uh, uh, some circum- stars aligned circumstances came about that I ended up getting back involved last year um, through just you know getting invited to a couple things and um, having some friends involved and it just happened. Um, but I came back and I was like, oh, I remember that. I remember how fun that was to beat up on those uh, big buff guys. Those non-runners. Yeah. Yeah. And then I hopped in and I was like, oh, shit, this has changed. <laughs> this has changed. Yeah. And, and, and that's almost happening happening year after year. Like I started in 2016. Like my first race was thir- 13 and then took a couple of years off and just d- didn't go after it. And like from 16 to now, 
how much better my fitness is. And I'm still like where I was essentially in 16, the running continues to just get better and better. So yeah. people are going to get fit like year over year for sure. Yeah, totally. So the, yeah, the initial appeal was to, I mean, was competitive and kind of like a, a little bit of a middle finger, but, uh, but you know, that, then the other side of it comes in where like, it's really, it's really interesting to have that particular challenge and, um, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that is like, I had a little bit of that thought as well coming into this. Like, I will come in and I will, I have a running background. I'm faster than these people. This is a running race. Like, it's not going to be a problem. Hey, what is your running background? Where'd you, where did you, would you, uh, I ran um, at a D1 mid major here in Philadelphia, St. Joe's. What's a mid major? So, what's that? What's a mid major? So, like a, a, a big school, like a Power Five conference would be like the Pac 12, like Oregon. Mid majors okay. are like I was in the Atlantic Ten Conference. I went to uh, St. Joe's uh-huh. in Philadelphia, so it would be like um, I'm trying to think of school in, on the West Coast. You guys are mostly big state schools, but yeah. it'd be like smaller, like Catholic schools, like Xavier or Marquette. Yeah, or, it's still D one, still D one, and they yeah. and like it doesn't really apply so much to running because like D one you know, is D one. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, we had some like one or two good teams, but like a team never would go to like cross nat nats or anything, or like you'd have like an individual go and maybe you get an all American that comes out of like the best runners, like an all American, but like the running's like good. It's fine. Yeah. So um, were you a steeple guy or a cross? cross yeah, yeah. Yeah. Steeple and cross. Yeah. Classic. Yeah. yeah I, it really is. Everyone does steeple. Something like, I guess I did steeple then. Cause I like was, I played basketball in high school. So I was more athletic than quote unquote, than uh, the other runners. And then I just, yeah did OCR they're like hey right this way it's have OCR. you done any ultras I've done one I did like one a, last year like a Spartan ultra or like Spartan a ultra. Ultra. okay yeah never done- it's another it's 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 definitely a pattern of um if you look at the top end of the ultra running community not obstacle course stuff uh it's a lot of, of uh steeplers why why do you think that is um I think it has to do with like versatility uh um what's the opposite of being fragile, uh, resilience, resilient, durability. durability. That's the word I was looking for. Um, they both worked. Yeah. Um, I think it has to do with that. It's like, okay, if everyone's a distance runner, who's going to be able to convert to something as extreme as an ultra. And it's probably the person who's like making the distance running harder already by jumping over shit. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. But in back then I like the running was also like, I felt like the steeple, like the best runners didn't until like Evan Yeager, Jagger now he's like a, a runner that can stand up in pretty much every distance yeah. or in, in the U S at least it wasn't, it was like the fastest guys run the 15 and the 5k, 10k. And then the other people would run the steeple who could, who could yeah. handle yeah. it. Jagger and Coburn are definitely the two who are breaking mm-hmm. the all that come to think of it. That's for sure. True. Like it yeah. was, it was just something that um, if you took the, it, it was a, it wasn't so much that it was a specialized skill as it was just that like the, the best runners weren't going to do it. So some, they didn't want to do it. Of, why would they do it? Yeah. Yeah. Which hey, win a 5k or ultra running. why, why run an ultra if you can get an OTQ in the marathon, right? Exactly. <laughs> I think about that sometimes for, for OCR in general as well. Like if we had a runner who would be an Olympic trials qualifier or have potential to go to the Olympics, like they wouldn't come into OCR and get like, and battle for, fifth you know like they might not even yeah. and there, like- there are some exceptions i think that's generally true there are some exceptions to that like uh woodsy for example was on some Oregon team based mm-hmm. out of stanford so woodsy's like a 13 mid 5k guy um 
So, you know, if, if he had gone to the marathon right after college, a hundred percent, he's a high, high end finisher at the Olympic trials. Definitely. Um, Ryan Atkins, I don't know if he just didn't figure out that he's a good runner in time, but if Ryan was just, just switched to ultra running, he would immediately be at the top um, or close to it. So uh, I think it, yeah, it is the case with some of these guys that like, well, and, and Albin is obviously a high level performer. In but, the he was, already. but he wasn't, uh, uh, I don't think he was a, a very good scholastic runner. I don't think he ran collegiately either. I don't think, I don't yeah, think I he was a runner forever. Yeah. I think they have a different system over there. Um, yeah. Like I, Tom Evans, who's an Adidas runner, Adidas, hmm. he was telling me about, um, their kind of collegiate system over there. And it made no sense to me. Like if you're good, you run club. There's no like high end collegiate system. It's I just, that's, that's not the path that people take the amateur school based running. I kind of wish that's how it was here. Makes sense. Yeah. Like if you're going to go be an athlete in your prime, like then you shouldn't be a student at the same time. You know? Yeah. Like you're not, yeah. A, I wasn't a student. I was a runner. You know, I didn't, get a really a college education because i didn't care yeah. i didn't go to school for that reason so are like, you talking about it. yourself or are you it, My, myself first sure. really? yeah 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 like i didn't go to college to like if there was a club route like i didn't need to go to college like you know would you run would you what was your steeple time uh 908 so oh, like damn girl there was like just under the regional qualifier at the time like two years in a row so i was like fine but uh but yeah here we are now in in, in ocr but that's kind of the and like, it's the same kind of deal. Like you said, people kind of come into a steeple and, and the same way they find themselves into to obstacle course racing. So I'm glad you're back. Yeah. Um, and yeah. It's, it's cool how people come to it from all these different spectrums, you know, like you can look at the start line and see Ryan Atkins and Ryan Woods and they could not be more different athletes. And yet they're so similar at this one middle ground, this middle ground battleground for those two. Do you think if more ultra high end ultra runners came in, like, is that something that is, Oh, I was going to tell you off air, but I'll tell you now. Corinne Malcolm was on the show earlier and she said, yeah, you were and trying to get her everything that she said was bullshit. I don't know if she was posing as a All scientist, right. but man, that girl has no idea what she's talking about. She said some big words to me and I just was like, <laughs> that must be the case. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. Corinne is the best. She's, she's a good friend. Yeah, I, yeah. I said you're trying to get her into. Do you think like more if more high end ultra runners came in, they would find the success that that you have found, or would it be a, a harder route for them? Or do you think that they would need to be ultra Spartan athletes right from the jump? Or how do you think that would that would go? I think um, I think it's almost identical to what would happen if. Uh, so we were talking before about how um, like why would you do one event if you're good at this other event, right? Mm-hmm. So if you were to take um, all of the men and women who can run an Olympic trials qualifying time at the marathon, um, and put that and start putting them all in ultras. That would be a terrifying thought to the ultra running community. Cause here are like some legit runners who aren't benefiting from this tiny community that we have, uh, who are coming in to, you know, steal our thunder. Um, I, I used to be worried about that, and then I saw it happen a bunch of times. And the rate at which those types of runners can convert to the ultra distance is really low. There's some who can, and they'll get through. Uh, Jim Walmsley, Hayden Hawks, uh, those guys have seriously legit collegiate um, credentials, and they made the transition to ultra, and it worked. Max King. Um, there's not, but 
by and large, it doesn't work. Like they make the transition and it, they just can't hang. Um, I think it's a metabolic thing. There's a variety of things. Like it's the same reason Usain Bolt can't run an 800. It's just not going to happen. Hmm. Um, so you think there is like a threshold there in terms of what you're capable of? Like where is that line drawn? If it's not 26, is it 50 miles? Like it's where? Weird. Like I mean, the difference between a 26.2 mile race and a 31.2 mile yeah. race is profound. It's like once you get into ultra, even at 50k, metabolism becomes just such a huge part of it, um, and that's such an X factor. Like you don't know if you have that, if you can convert, um, if you can develop that that skill until you do it and try it and train it and 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 willingness to do it is also part of it. But with regard to transitioning into ultra, I think it's the same thing. I think um, if you were to look at it and say, well, why don't we have all these ultra people or even, you know, marathoners or whatever, like we were to have them do a bunch of pull-ups and then try to do an OCR race. Um, some, it would work for some of them, but the vast majority it wouldn't work for. Um, and that's like a little bit of a personal horn toot there because like, you know, I made it work. I'm okay. You know, I thought I was going to be better at OCR and I think I have more potential than I showed this year. Like, I think I can run um, in the top tier. Like, I don't think I'm a better athlete than Atkins, but I think like at a national championship type thing, I should be, uh, I should be in that group or I I can be in that group. But um, for the most part, ultra run, like look at ultra runners, man. They just don't, they don't have the biceps for it. Right. There's like, Mm -hmm. you have to be a certain type of strong that isn't usually compatible with running that far. Like I'm muscular for an ultra runner. Um, there are some guys like me, like if you look at body type, some guys who I think might be good at it, like Eric Sensman, I think could be a good OCR racer. Is that redundant at that point? OC racer. Yeah. Um, I, 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 OCR I'm, athlete. I'm yes, you, I, new to this, dude. Yeah, you can tell. <laughs> People are like, all right. Yeah. Um, Tom Evans, the Adidas guy I was talking about, I think mm-hmm. he would be good. Um, but Jim Walmsley would be horrible. There's no way he could do it. Uh, Jeff Browning might be good. Corinne, I think, would be awesome. She's a former biathlete, so she's right. she's awesome. got different skills, man. She's she's a skier. She's strong as fuck. So, I, I mean, I think she could convert. Accuracy. Um, that's yeah, fear. Yeah, totally. yeah I, I don't think many people could. There's definitely like a small pool that I would go to and say they probably could though. So yeah, and on, on, on your end, when you first came on my radar, like you were there way before I was, but then the first race that I saw you in was in Seattle and mm-hmm. Oh, don't bring histor- that race up. No, it's happening. So historically <laughs> I have had until like the past two years, I would be one of the faster runners and I would mm-hmm. consistently miss obstacles. And that day you were passing me and then you were doing terrible on the obstacle. Oh, that's and I was, where I recognize you from. Yeah. We were there, weren't we? Yeah, a lot of it. Like you you would pass me and like we were like the bucket together and I think we both missed Z Wall. Did you miss Z Wall? No. Oh, you did not miss Z Wall. Um, I missed Z Wall, so maybe I was a petty at that point. But I and then I caught up to you somewhere else, and I was like, "This guy is the fast guy who's terrible at obstacles," and that's that's my corner. This guy has some yeah. some nerves stepping on my toes. Yeah. So like, what did you do to like shore things up? Because later in the year, that didn't seem to be as much of an issue as it was on that one specific day. Granted, it was wet, it was cold, it was a miserable day, but still, the best OCR athletes they are getting through. Um, most of the obstacles most of the time. So like, how did you, did you find place for that or just kind of figure it out as you were doing more races? 
So a big part of it was that it was wet that day. And uh, the upper body obstacles, well, I guess they're all kind of upper body obstacles, but the, the hanging obstacles are way harder when it's wet. So I think um, a lot of the obstacles were like kind of right in my uh, right at my threshold of being able to do them comfortably. But when they got wet, they were just out of my range. So I was spending a lot of effort on the obstacles, which was ruining my race um, and my sort of ability to get, get through it quickly. Um, another part of it uh, was that um, even if I, I don't think I got much stronger over the course of the year, but just doing the obstacles over and over again and improve it. It's not even like improving the technique, but just building a little bit of muscle memory with them goes a long way. So um, in my first couple of races, like tw- uh, not twister. Uh, Beater. No, it is twister. Twister was really hard for me um, just cause it's like, it's not a very fluid movement. Um but then, I mean, you do it. Do you do climb at all? I do now just to get better at obstacle course racing. Yeah, I, I did a little bit. Um, and I noticed, like, so if you're in the gym bouldering, you can climb a route. It's, like, just out of your wheelhouse. And you climb it, you know, say you spend, like, a couple weeks projecting this route. And then you finally get it. And, you know, you tried it 100 times to get to that point, And you finally get it. And then... Uh, say you take a little break, take an hour off and go back. You're going to get it again. You know how to do it. Yeah. So there's something about just, uh, like subtle body positioning, um, if, and just, yeah, efficiency of movement that just makes it easier. And I, I benefited a lot from that over the course of the year. And will you then just kind of mentally recap it? Cause I spent, I find I spent a lot of my time just thinking about how to do them. Just so I remember, because if I'm in a race and I'm just exhausted, I'll like, forget <laughs> like, yeah. i'll just like be doing it wrong all of a sudden be like oh shit i forgot this is i'm supposed to do it this way are you were you mentally going over it or were you pretty confident once you got him you got him i was pretty confident once i got him i got him i mean i was fortunate to um go to several races over the course of the year so i get, really got to solidify them pretty quickly um yeah and they're not exactly like super complicated so so let's stay on the grip thing just for a little bit because it's when I, I, I've found some athletes who I coach who are kind of moving up in, in distance. And I think it's a good avenue. And I think ultra, like, I think that trail, I do want to talk about the Spartan trail series a little bit as well. And I think trail running and ultra running will see a little bit of an influx from people kind of filtering through Spartan and then into those avenues because they just want to kind of push themselves a little bit more, or they just like running in the woods a bit more than they thought then maybe like the obstacles a little bit less. Um, but when people are training for these ultra distances, uh, they do get so fatigued that the, the obstacles do become a challenge on like that second lap. Um, was that like, in your case, did you find that your fitness could just be elevated un- high enough that you could handle everything on that second lap in terms of the obstacles? Or were you training specifically for upper body endurance or like, late stage carries endurance for, um, for these type of ultra races. I, why well, I, I guess I did two. I only did one of the ultras in the regular season and that was Tahoe. Mm-hmm. And then I did um, ultra worlds in Sweden. But, um, I guess I was surprised at how it wasn't really a factor. Hmm. Um, I didn't find that on the second loop I was, particularly fatigued on the upper body stuff. I kind of expected that I would be, especially at um, Tahoe when we had the uh, monkey in the middle obstacle, which is yeah. about as tough uh, 
of a grip obstacle as you could ever have. Um, but yeah, I, you know, it didn't, it didn't really, I think it's just because you have, um, so much time to recover between them. Um, and then, you know, it's weird because it doesn't feel like that when you're doing one of the shorter races, it feels like each obstacle burns you out for the next one. Uh, but I don't know. I, I, I guess I don't have a solid answer for that. Why that just wasn't a factor, but even in, even, in, um, in Sweden, you know, doing 21, 22 hours of loops on the same obstacles. Like, you know, when I did Twister for the first time, I barely made it. And then I, you know, eight months later did Twister 10 times over 21 hours. So, uh, I don't know. It was very odd that it just held up. Yeah. And I wonder if it is just like the exertion that you're putting out or if you are giving yourself more time or if it's just more of a relaxed feel and the conditions do play into it a lot. I mean, like I think the obstacles in Tahoe or basically on the West coast in general, where it's dry are easy. They're just yeah. much easier than they are in West Virginia or Palmerton or Seattle for that matter. Um, how, how was it like in, uh, in Sweden? Was, did the cold play factor for you when it come, came to the grip stuff? Um, the, it didn't really, uh, again, like, I think we all kind of expected that, but, um, and I, th- I think if you messed up your glove situation, it might've been a problem. Um, but really it was just wear warm enough gloves that your hands stay warm and then just go to bare hand when you're doing the obstacle, be quick about it and then put your gloves back on. Uh, it just was yeah, it wasn't that much of a problem. And it was so cold that, uh, everything, I mean, a couple obstacles had some ice on them. Um, but as long as you know, you know, you're not flying through it and being reckless with that, it's pretty easy to avoid slipping. Hmm. And in terms of like effort compared to, I know you, you don't have too much experience when it comes to the Spartan ultra stuff. So like, I don't know how this question will be in terms of comparison, but like, are you approaching the race in the same way? Uh, that you're just like, I'm going to get to my pace and just going to sit where I know what I can handle for five and a half hours and just do it. Or is there a different approach because of, you know, you're coming up, you're, there's going to be a sandbag carry, a bucket carry, or like, was there any sort of change in your approach from ultra to Spartan ultra? I think a Spartan ultra is much closer to a regular ultra than a shorter distance Spartan is to a equivalent race of that distance, because you do, you do get an opportunity to settle into a running pace in a way that you don't in the normal, like the difference between a a Spartan beast and a regular half marathon as a physical experience is ridiculous. Like the way I try to describe it to people is if you like, imagine you're going out and, and running a half marathon, but every five minutes you have to sprint for 20 seconds like that physical experience is really different from just going for a half marathon PR. The time ends up being like twice as long, right? Like, but then making it another marathon, another half marathon. Yeah. But at that point, like you're, you're keeping your heart rate lower because the hard part about, you know, the shorter distances is like you're redlined the whole time where you're not in one of the ultras. You just, right. you, you have to take, you take a couple breaths before an obstacle. Your pace is slow enough that you get to recover between obstacles. Um, it's a much mellower experience. I think the other ones are way, way more difficult in, in terms of like in the moment pain, I think. Hmm. And how does that change your actual like mindset around it? Because having this wide range of races that you you choose to do and you want to do them well, when you are going up to a race, is, is 100 your longest? Uh, yeah, 100 is my longest. 
um, like when you're preparing for a race that's a hundred miles versus a Spartan super in like Virginia, which is like flat, right? Like that's like an hour long. Like how, how does that change your mental approach to it? Or like coming into race day, is there a different approach or are you kind of single-minded on that? Um, well, it's, it's hard to say almost because if you've signed up for a hundred mile race, it's pretty likely that you care more about that race than you do about a shorter race. Like you don't do a hundred unless you care about it because it's going to, it's going to fuck your body up for months afterwards. It's not a 5k. Yeah. I mean, there are some exceptions to that rule. Like there are some people who can hop in those and be okay a week later. But um, for the most part, like if you signed up for a hundred, it means a lot to you. So um, yeah, just because of, just because of what you, what it's going to take out of you, there's no just like, there's no hopping into it just because it sounds like a good time. Um, so in terms of preparation, in terms of like caring about what goes into a week or two in advance, it, it that's at a definitely a different level. Um, but in terms of like, you know, your mentality, I, yeah, I guess there's, there's just more weight to it. Yeah. But you know, I, I, it's just a matter of scale, not of category. Like, mm. In a sense, it's all kind of the same. Gotcha. So it wouldn't one, you don't feel like the, performance is affected either way based on the mental preparation for it it's just a matter of like is it just the sheer distance of it and like what might happen to you during that time that makes it just feel different i mean not what might happen to you what's definitely going to happen to you <laughs> what is going to what's about to happen yeah what's what's yeah there's so many more there's so you have to you have to be more patient um oh, wow that's super profound uh, <laughs> there's not there's not um, there's not usually an element of problem solving in shorter distances, even in Spartan races where uh, where there's obstacles. Like once you do the obstacles once, there's no more like there's no more creativity. Whereas when you're doing ultras, in every race, your body's going to give you signals that you have to interpret, and they're not straightforward. Like there's a, a a bunch of different ways that your body can tell you to eat. And only one of them is the feeling of hunger. Mm. Um, and the journey of becoming a successful ultra runner is figuring out all those different signals and what they mean and how you ought to respond to them. So it's way more complex than, um, than an obstacle course race, uh, which is weird to say. But, you know, an obstacle course race gets there when it's longer. Just the, the distance and the time being out there, like the, the body management um, – is is like that's the crux factor hmm. when it and that was an interesting point that i hadn't thought about when the different signals that are getting sent your way like how can you help someone prep for something like that because it seems like that would be very personalized right like is it just a matter of going through it or is there a relatability as to like what you potentially might feel out there or is there any way to prepare for a race that's let's say even like 100k like with, without even without doing it? I mean, there's certainly similarities that people have and you can certainly give people advice. Um, when it comes down to it, like there's going to have to be the experience of going through it, making a mistake and figuring out what you did wrong. Like I think most ultra runners, new ultra runners ought to expect the following experience. Running several or at least a few ultras, getting to a point where their body just feels like shit asking themselves, 
do I need food? No, I should be good. Finishing the race feeling like shit, looking back, realizing that in that moment, they did need food. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it's, it's so, and, and I mean, it, a lot of it really does come down to food. But um, yeah, figuring out like those, the signals are, are not straightforward a lot of the time. Um, to figuring out all your body's different languages when it's in different states is, that's like, that is the journey. And like the one thing about ultra running that to, to me holds me back is just the like <clears throat> thought of the recovery, right? Like, and being able to reflect and then troubleshoot and then try it again. It's not like, it doesn't, it's not like a Spartan race, like, right. Like you're not doing a Saturday and then a Sunday and then you change and Sunday goes better because you know how to do things. Well, um, I think that's, cultural thing because it is like it's insane i think to and this is it's been so surprising to me to get into the spartan scene and see people like doing a saturday race and then a sunday race and then eh, maybe a sunday afternoon race and then oh yeah like i'm gonna go out and do the same shit next weekend next weekend 100 like, percent. i thought so too because it's like coming with from a running background it's like you race like once every other week <laughs> and like yeah and that's and, enough and now as an ultra runner, I think back to college and I'm like, I raced every other week. That's insane. <laughs> right. <laughs> so much. <laughs> and there's something to be said about experience though. And I think that's, I mean, I think it is just fun. Like you said, like OCR is just fun. So people want to go out there and they want to do, th- do things they can't do in their normal lives. And it's a good time. And, and like getting better at the obstacles, it does take practice. How we talked about before, the more reps, um, and you can get through it, the more confident you can feel. And I feel like there is a place to kind of double back as much as I don't like to, or would not like to. Um, but like in the ultra ultra world, like, is it just a lot of figuring out what you can do? So next time, and then you just screw it up again the next time, or like how many times can you think you can go? Is it ever finished? Like do, are like the people at the highest level, are they dialed in? Like, are you dialed in with your process to the point where you can kind of predict how you're going to feel? Um, I think you can get good at it. I think let's call it like, like, like a good baseball player bats like 350, right? Mm, okay. I think there's like a much wider range, like an ultra running, a good, a good batter bats like 800 and a okay. bad batter bats like, you know, the 100 that would be normal in baseball. Um, but then there, I mean, there, you also, like, there's choices to make there, too. Like, you, I'm to the point, I think, I mean, I'm still new to this. I haven't run that many races. There's so many people who are serious veterans compared to me. You look at a guy like Carl Meltzer, who's won 40-plus 100-milers, and you can look at him and, and say, like, all right, well, that dude's got a dial. Like, he clearly knows how to do it. But I kind of do, too. But I know, like, I I could give you an 80% performance tomorrow. Like, hmm. I'm real sure that I could do that. But then there's this secondary choice you have to make where it's like there, there's an infinite number of risks you can take. Like, you could, you could run a smart race and run, like, 80 or 90% of your potential. But if you want to go for 100, like, there's some risks in there that are not a matter of, like, there's some, there's some chance in there. There's, it's not even a matter of like deciphering your body signals anymore. It's a matter of doing that perfectly and getting lucky. Yeah. And there are some guys who do that. Like, I mean, 
Jim Walmsley to bring him up again. Like he does that. He knows that he's the best dude that fucking Jim Walmsley. Like he's a friend of mine. He is like, he's very polarizing. I think what he is doing in the sport of ultra running is so cool. Like he knows that he is in terms of sheer talent. Well, this is arguable. Killian's really good too, but he's, he's basically the best guy we've ever had in terms of sheer talent. He knows that and he's willing to sacrifice uh, almost every race in order to, and, and his career generally in order to, <laughs> in order to do things that we've never seen in the sport. Like Jim, Jim's like his training is so crazy that he, he will personally admit to you that like, yeah, I got five years. I want to break all the records and then I'm going to burn out. Mm. And he's, he's giving that to us. You know, that's a gift. Like he's going to do some things in this sport that no one's ever been able to do because he's willing to put it all on the line. And he's a guy who could have just sat back, been smart about it, given it 80%, won every race and stayed in the sport for 20 or 30 years. But he's using the fact that he has the highest potential of anyone we've ever seen. And he's just like doubling down, taking all the risks so that he can do some shit that is like generational level. Uh, extraordinary and these are the athletes like it that's like it'll be a paradigm shift right like athletes or artists come along every now and then and it's like oh before and then walmsley came and then everything changed right and then that that will spark a new generation of somebody that will push to even take it further until the next walmsley comes whenever that is yeah Do do you think that is something that he like thinks about he's like i'm taking this somewhere else and I'm going to be that legend. Or do you think it's per, on his end or do you think it is? Like you said, it's a gift to help everybody else like push a little bit further and see what we're really capable of. Like, what do you, or do you think it's like both? <laughs> no, no, I, I know that it, he's told me, <laughs> I, he knows exactly what he's doing. And it's not a gift to us. Like let, let's show people this so that they'll push themselves further. It's like he's sacrificing himself in order to, in order to benefit us as spectators, it's not to inspire us. It's like, oh man, what's it like? There's, there's, it's almost like an astronaut, man. It's like he's going into space knowing that there's a chance he's going to die, but he's like, if he sacrifices himself by going up <laughs> the rocket ship, like humanity will have this thing that we did. Like he will be. Uh, this is, uh, like, <laughs> like Jim's the most silly, awkward dude. I, I love him. Is it, it's just like I don't. Know, I'm so proud of what he's doing. It's so cool. And that is, it's a cool way to approach it. And it has to then make it not easy, but it like to make your training crazy. Like if you really want to be have that as your goal, like your training is going to have to be crazy. So like there is no reason, like there's no reason for him to pull back or to 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 resonate. Point if that's his goal, like then he's going to be a madman. Yeah, he's got to be. And yeah. he eventually, and he'll say it, man. Eventually, it's going to catch up to him. He's going to get a career-ending injury. He's going to burn out. It's going to happen. And that's it's not just the bet that he's making. It's the deal that he's making. <laughs> that, that is really cool. And, um, and, and something that in the ultra world in general that is – you know, there's the point like, you know, people can do 50Ks and the, the Spartan Ultras, 
you know, you can wrap your head around what a 30 mile is or 31 miles or whatever it is. Um, but when you get into that hundred mile distance, there's like a real, uh, like a fear that like, and like you can't really comprehend what that's like. Like how, how do you make that jump or how do you help people give, give them that push to like go into that unknown space? Um, Part of it, I mean, a lot of it is just building. Like there, I, I, there is something kind of magical about the hundred mile distance, where for most people that is one full day. So there's yeah. something different about going beyond that because then you're starting to deal with sleep deprivation, which does make it categorically and not just in terms of scale different. But it is also the case that um, uh, just introducing like i mean it's it's a very simple thing to say but introducing things slowly and scaling up over time um has a very interesting way of making things easier like the first 50k that i did was so hard and i was wrecked afterwards and then i did a 50 miler and i was wrecked after that and then i did 100k and i was wrecked after that then i went back to a 50k and it was like super mellow and i wasn't <laughs> in it i was in better shape it's just that my body had this uh, deep understanding of what it meant to go longer than that. And so doing a 50K was n- no longer that profound of a thing. I don't think that's all mental. I think there's some – it can't be all mental. Like there's, we're talking about like muscle damage here and, and joint swelling and stuff. But when you scale up slowly, one of the most fun things about getting into ultra running is that you can always go down in distance mm. and it feels – so fun to do that because it doesn't hurt anymore. Hmm. Like 50 is are uh, a 50 K to me. It's like, if you're training for the five K and you drop down to the 1500, you're just like, Holy shit, we're moving, man. I'm just sprinting this whole thing. That's <laughs> like how I've been done. Feel that way to 50 K now. It's just all fun and no risk anymore. Huh. It's super cool. How does that affect the training then? Because that's something where if I was going to, make a a huge jump i feel like i would get way carried away with training to the point where i feel like i'd be overprepared or injured um so like how does that change based on the race distances and just helping people kind of like like know they're going to be okay because um there's got to be some sort of faith at some point so like how do you stop people from just going crazy or like how do you build people up appropriately well i think at any ultra distance like there's just like you said there's a certain amount of faith like you can't you know, if you're talking about like training principles and how long your your even if you get up to the marathon, like how long your long run ought to be in in relationship to the the race distance, right? You can't apply that to a hundred mile race. Right. So there's in like a technical sense, there's no way to properly prepare for a hundred miler. Like you can get really good. Uh, it, you know, there's. I'm I'm so conflicted on training because like I think there's so many different ways to get fast. I've I've gone through like you know classic collegiate Daniels Lydiard training and then totally abandoned that and just gone up into the mountains and run three hours a day mm-hmm. and then come and not done any speed work and come back down like a year later like oh man I'm probably out of shape or like I probably can't run fast because I haven't run faster than an eight minute mile in a year and then hopped on the track and like basically PR in a five k so. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not precious about training styles um, because again, like, I mean, Roger Bannister broke the four minute mile. He would, he would take a train out to a track and he would alternate sprinting and jogging a 400 meters for half an hour. 
Like that's how we broke the four minute mile. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, but in ultra running, and that's another crux of it is like, you can't actually prepare for the distance. So you have to kind of do a partial job and then condition yourself for that, like condition yourself mentally. And I guess physically to the extent that you can for that, that extra bit that your training doesn't cover. Yeah. And that's, cause that's, what's hard about it, right? Like, is there, cause there can't necessarily be a blueprint cause everybody's going to have different ability levels and, and figure it out. You can't really kind of stick somebody in and be like, okay, you need to get to this many miles. Do, do people ask you that a lot? Like, is that a question? It's like, how many miles do I need to run a week to do a hundred K or something? I think most people like that's, that's definitely the first question, but I think most people get over that one pretty quickly mm-hmm. um, because it depends on, obviously on like what terrain you're on, how fast you are. It's more about time really. Um, yeah. I, I like, and this is as I'm getting into coaching, this is like the big struggle that I'm facing is like my uh, skepticism about particular training styles and trying to um give advice to people when I personally believe that pretty much anything goes. Right. Cause has there been, has there been like a blueprint written on, because like you mentioned Daniel and Lydia, like if you want to run a faster 5k, like you can follow this formula, whatever, do these principles and like, you'll probably get faster. But like you said, you can do it a bunch of different ways. So when you are programming for somebody and you're not dogmatic in any specific way, are you just letting it, fit into their life and what they like and what they can do? Or is there anything that you need to see and in, in, from them in any specific way? Um, you know, I'm, I'm maybe not totally qualified to answer that. Um, I think if anyone, like I, I talked about Lydiard and, and Daniels who are like kind of the old school and, and sort of medium school um, pillars of, of long distance training. If there's anyone who's doing that now, if, if, if anyone has adapted that to ultra running, it's probably, um, Jason Coop and David Mm. Roche. Those are probably the two people with the most experience who understand it the most. Um, but I, I still think we're young, you know, I think, I think the best anyone's been able to do is like kind of keep some of those pillars of speed training, but just really shift the emphasis towards mileage building. Yeah. There needs to be some sort of intuitive sense to training and that's always going to be the best way to do it. It's like, what do you need to do on race day? It's like, okay, there's 8,000 feet of elevation during this run. So like, you're going to need to do some hills um, where instead of like making sure you hit certain markers or, or something along the way. So I think it, having that intuitive sense, especially in ultra makes, makes for a better approach than trying to, Cause even like in like the Daniels or even like Hanson's or whatever, I know they're a specific marathon or half marathon. They like, they're like, there's no, there's no metabolic advantage for running longer than like three hours. Did they say that? Daniel says that. Yeah. But keyword metabolic. Yeah. What about, what about your joints, man? Joints and physical. I I just think they just. one of those assholes to go run a hundred miles and get 70 miles in and look down at their knees and wish they hadn't gone farther in a training run. Exactly. And that's like the whole point. It's like, well, sometimes people are going to be out there longer than this. And like, how can you expect them not to even like marathoners? Like they need, there's like six hour marathoners. They need to train longer than three hours, you know? Yeah. That's such a weird thing. It's like the, man, the, the, 
the folks who are like theoretically they're doing the same thing, but it's taking so much longer. Like, how do you even account for that? Because on the one hand, like maybe they should be training harder considering the thing's going to take them longer. But on the other hand, it's a weaker athlete, so you can't give them more training. Just yeah, such a and a lot of yeah, I mean, a lot of people in the the Spartan ultras are going to take literally twice as long as you take. You know, so like, do you get do you get them out there twice as long? Because they need to do like, that, you know. More like three times. Three as times as long. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know. I think I think you're right about it being uh, very intuition based. You have to draw on the strengths of the athlete. Like, if there's someone who can handle a long run and just gets blown up by speed work, then I think you have to emphasize the long run. Um, and luckily. I think that uh, as people who think about it a lot, we like the intuition thing tends to be, a, it actually tends to be a hard question to answer. So I think that's a place in which we can help a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So, you know, if some, so, uh, it's often that someone comes to you and is like, Hey, I, you know, I have this goal. I don't know how to get there. And you think to yourself like, fuck, there's a million ways to do this. How do I, how do I even start? But like, there's a, like just uh, like thinking about it for a long time and coming up with something tends to be helpful for people. Cause you know, they, they don't, we may have 10 places we want to start, but may, they might have zero. Right. So like, right. So starting anywhere, starting um, anywhere, you know? <laughs> just like, let's see. And like, that's the, that's the part of the process. And if someone's getting into ultra specifically, they need to have that specific time commitment associated with it as well. And um, something that I've struggled with with athletes are like, oh, I'm, I'm doing an ultra in 16 weeks and I'm just starting running now. It's like, uh, yeah, you're like, man, dude, you need a year and a half at least. Exactly. But it's weird because then like um, some of the people who've been in it for a really long time and who race really often, um, I keep bringing up the same people over and over again, but I guess they're just my canon. Carl Melter, uh, this is like hearsay, and I, I don't know the I, I don't know the guy personally, but like uh, rumor has it, let's say that you know homeboy runs like fifty or sixty miles a week. He just races all the time. He's huh. just either he's either always recovering from or tapering for a race. And so, like for him, having done so many of these things, he's settled into a rhythm where he just like every three or four months does a hundred, and then just like runs a casual 50 or 60 every week between, and then like does another hundred. Hmm. So he doesn't, he doesn't like put in training. Like the races become the training. He races himself in the shape. Interesting. Yeah. And, and yeah, Spartans do that all the time, racing himself in the shape. But like the, the idea of doing that with hundred milers is very odd. Right. And I don't like, I try to steer people away from doing that particular cycle because most people are not Carl Meltzer and they need time to train to get to a certain level. But like, if they don't put in that associated training, they won't ever really see that progress where, where he or, or anybody <laughs> like he can <laughs> handle it at this point where most obstacle course racers are newer athletes, newer ultra runners. They really can't, yeah. you know? True. Um, so about what I was saying was, um, Oh, well, over that time commitment that these people need. So if they aren't that and they do need to try and we just start anywhere, like we're going to be able to figure out what didn't work at a certain point and try the second thing on the list of the 10, you know? Totally. But that involves like you have to have time with this person. Exactly. Like you can't have someone who like signs up for three months of coaching. You You get, you get to try half of one thing that amount of time. Yeah. And I mean, we were talking about like, the uh the difficulty in like 
pitching a product service and charging someone for something. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it really, uh, fuck. Like, yeah, it's so hard to, it's so hard to, um, to like agree to take on someone and know that you could be spending like a long period of time, not helping them in order to figure out how to help them eventually how to actually help them. Yeah. And there, there's always that thing. It's like, well, maybe this will work right away. <laughs> it's like, yeah, let's, let's do it for five months. And like this you might adapt perfectly to the first idea that I had for you and trying to figure those things out. So it's I mean, hard, it's hard to turn, to turn them back because they're going to do what their goal is either way. So it's better to have some sort of guidance for them in that short amount of time. Um, even if they might not get the results of that they were hoping for. Yeah. Um, I mean, luckily, luckily I think it's the case that having any structure at all is probably beneficial for some, mm-hmm. for, for most people. Like if you give them something that's not the ideal training program, like, and, and the problem is once you get into people who are like really good, like fucking all my, the people I coach are good runners. And so I'm constantly worried about doing the wrong thing with them. But if you like, if you were to take someone who's basically off the couch, like who gives a shit what you tell them to do? Like if they do anything, like the fact that you're telling them what to do seven days a week means that they're going to get better. Cause if you weren't telling them what to do seven days a week, they would just not run at all or run right. a week. So they're <laughs> going to get better. Even if your, your program's not, not ideal for them, but it's once you get into actually good athletes where like finessing it is important that it becomes kind of like, you know, becomes something to stress out about. Yeah. And I've, I feel that stress as well in those same <clears throat> circumstances, but it's kind of like the same thing, like the principles of getting people good results it, it, it kind of boils down to like making sure that they are recovered and that they're yeah. like, and that they trust what the process is. Cause there's a lot of ways to do it. How, how do you feel? I, I think this might be like, especially interesting. Well, I think this might apply, especially to obstacle course racing, but how do you feel about the notion that you ought to be, let's call it like macro periodization. Uh-huh. Um, like, how do you feel about the notion that you like need to continue to surprise your body? I don't mean in like a CrossFit sense where like every day ought to fuck you up because you have like never done a workout quite like it. Mm-hmm. But like, um, I'll go like personal background. So I, again, I did like collegiate running just like you and I got out and, and you know, like many collegiate athletes, like every season I would come in fit because I did good summer training. And then every season I would finish burnt out because mm-hmm. we my team and I raced every workout, including mm-hmm. recovery runs. So it's like I come in late August feeling great. September, like I have some great performances in the first couple of meets. And then through October, I taper off and then I'm burnt out and low iron and feeling like shit all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got to the end of college and was like, oh, man, I'm getting it out of college. Like I know how to train myself better than my coach did because clearly I do because I finished every season slower than I started. So like, I'm going to get out of college, like do my own training. I'm going to get faster at everything. I'm going to PR on a 5k, PR on a 10k. And (laughs) like fell way off and like was running slower than I had since like freshman year in high school. And then I, at a certain point I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm going to switch now and start doing ultra. So I just like basically threw my watch away and just went up into the hills 
and just started doing long runs on trails and not doing any speed, any road, any workouts, nothing structured. And I came back and I was accidentally way better at running. Hmm. And so part of me is like, all right, I increased the volume obviously. And you can go pretty far with just pure aerobic benefit. Mm-hmm. But like, the, the question I'm getting at is some people would argue that it, you like every once in a while, say every like few to several years, you need to just like totally change it up. If you've been a pure aerobic runner, like guess what? You're going into a speed phase now for a year or so. If you're a person who's been doing structured Daniel style training, like guess what? You're going into the hills for a couple years. Um, do you believe in that? Or do you think like continuing on the same program for a really long period of time is the way to go? I think it's just a matter of, of, of fatigue and rest at that point, being able to change things. So I think you, if, if you're able to structure it and, and do the same thing and have it be like linear, as long as you're managing the fatigue, well, I don't see why not. That's why I, that's how I think people switching, like going from a, a speed phase to a, a <clears throat> distance phase gets them results because they just change the stimulus and the, the fatigue levels kind of change based on like, so they're not just pounding the same thing, the same system over and over and they can still kind of train as opposed to just like taking, like, I bet if you did that and you took like two months off a year and just kind of went back to what you were doing, like you would continue oh. to get those gains um, just cause you would be more, more fresh and you wouldn't have that overload of fatigue. So I don't necessarily think it's, I don't necessarily think it is benef- like necessary to do like, uh, a whole training block of quarters and then the next one's all threshold and then all is next the whole next one's all like marathon pace um i think it just kind of helps manage the fatigue a little bit more yeah huh yeah and i think part of it could also be just like enthusiasm you know if you're doing something mm-hmm. new like you can get totally you can totally get burnt out on on a particular kind of workout and it's nice to just like start focusing on something else for a while so that you can just feel stoked about it Totally. And, and yeah, or if you are, or if you dread the other side, like, and you just always want to do speed work, then like, okay, like that's fine. Like it comes along the same lines. Like it's, if you can tell them what to do and they'll do it, if they like doing speed work and they'll do it and they'll be invigorated in doing it, like they're going to see results where yeah, you try totally. to put them on 40 mile, 40 minute tempo runs and they're going to hate it and miss it. <laughs> like that, yeah. that's worse. Dude, is there anything worse to do alone than a tempo run? Man. Um, so what do you got going on with, uh, Chosky? Yeah. So, um, uh, so as mentioned, I'm coaching now. Uh, I have been for a little while, but I, I joined a, what we call a coaching collective. Um, and basically the idea is we are, it's a group of coaches. Um, and we, sort of communally operate a service for athletes. So like, man, uh, it's like, there's, there's some things that are kind of long-term about it and there's some things that are kind of short-term about it. But anyway, like we've got, uh, the kind of cruxes to the thing are that, um, we collaborate on how we prepare training programs for people, which is like, that's what got me hooked on it is or or sold on the idea is that like I can write a training program for someone and know that before I give it to someone, it's going to be edited by, um, you know, 
two people who are Olympic trials qualifiers and like mm. two people who are, you know, sponsored ultra runners. So I feel a little less self-conscious about offering up a training plan that I write because I know that some people who I really respect are going to look at it. Um, so Chosky has this, this slogan that's like, what, what do we call it? We, it's a, uh, re it's like reinventing, um, on the online coaching model, which is like potentially leaving a bad taste in people's mouths there. Cause like there's plenty of online coaching services and even groups that are doing a great job. Um, and I think the phrasing of that might be like a little bit off putting, um, to those people who have been in it for a while, a but bit. the way that it is different. So, you know, on the one hand, like, no, it's not different from them. Like we are collaborating. That's been done before. It's great. We're inspired by that. The way in which it is potentially different um, is that it's structured. It's structured in a way that promotes growth and diversification. So, like, we've got a whole bunch of coaches. Um, we're going to be onboarding more coaches as we go. It's almost going to be like a fucking pyramid scheme. <laughs> um, so there's going to be like coach, like there's going to be like top tier mentor coaches and then like a, another level of coaches and another level of coach. You're going to be out of track meets, like pitching kids, but like, Hey, you want to make some yeah. money? Have you heard about Amway? <laughs> yeah. So it's going to be tiered, which is cool. Um, we're, there's also going to be a bunch of other services we offer. Like there's going to be camps. Um, we're doing a bunch of events. Like we had a treadmill world record thing that happened a couple months ago. Where like, oh, cool. Yeah. We had, um, you guys, I saw that there was, yeah, that was us. We oh, were nice. doing, we did, um, we got there. It's not like it's hard to get treadmill world records, uh, as of a couple months ago, but, um, there was a world record set at the half marathon, marathon, 50 K hundred K 50 mile, like men's and women's. It was crazy. Like every record there was is gone now. That's cool. Um, yeah. So there's like camps, there's events, there's, you know, there's well, online camps and in-person camps, online camps who knew what those were a couple months ago, but yeah. Um, yeah. So the idea is like, we're set up for scale and diversification in a way that other online coaching programs are not. So we're not different in that. Like we're not saying we're the first ones ever to collaborate. Um, but there is like a little bit more in terms of the way in which we're set up to expand. So, um, that's, I think, the kind of cool part about it. And as someone who I, I, I consider myself a relatively inexperienced coach, that's what got me on board is knowing that I could reach out to all these other coaches for support as I try to write programs for people. And it, to me, that it, that that is um, a different approach because it is because of the collaboration and, and being able to to because usually the group coaching model is like one coach does it for a bunch of people, but this is like a bunch of coaches doing it for one person, right? It kind of flips that, that, that model, which is cool, which is, which is really cool. So it's like the, the program you're going to get is going to be, you know, really sound, something you can totally trust. And like the names that are on there and like the, the experience of the people who are involved are really top notch. I saw those, those online camps. That's how I came across the website and I saw you're on there. How'd those go? They dude, they were really cool. Um, I mean, again, like we are, right now really long in resources and, and not, and like kind of short. And this is part, this is just like how the thing is designed to grow, but like we have uh, way too many good coaches and not enough athletes yet. So it's like I'm coaching with Mike Wardian and Pete Kostelnik and, um, and uh, Kimber Maddox and Devin Yanko. And it's like, uh, so all of us have like two athletes. That's <laughs> 
weird. <laughs> um, but then, you know, with the, the cool thing is where it comes in is like, yeah, we do these camps and, you know, people sign up and it's like, you've got five or six presenters who are all world-class runners. Really cool, really cool presenters. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, that's the cool part of it. So yeah. I mean, right now we're like, again, we're set up for growth. So we're over-resourced and, and under um, attended, but you know, the, the idea is as it grows, like we're, we're already set up to take, you know, 50 times the, 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 I guess, under structure that we currently have. Yeah. yeah it's, it's cool. So it, I mean, basically they're on certain topics. We have different people giving lectures on specific things and, um, you know, try not to overload anyone in particular, but it, it ends up kind of keeping it fresh and, um, we've all got cool shit to talk about. So, yeah. Yeah. I was going to attend. I, for, I forget what was it. But then I, I was going to attend and then I didn't think about it for a couple of weeks. <laughs> Which one were you looking at? Uh, the one that you were, there was a, the ultra one. And then there was one that like, uh, like Scott Fobble was. Yeah. Was the marathon one. Yeah. That would have been yeah. sweet. I just read yeah, that, that book. Have you read one? his book, the inside the marathon. But he wrote it. He wrote it. Dude, that guy's too young to be writing a book. What is it's he like? Know? Nah, it's like, um, it's him and his coach, Ben Rosario. It's like, yeah. it's real time accounts of him preparing for New York in, um, 2018, I guess. So basically it's just like his training journal and like, they wrote it separately. So like his coach wrote what he thought was going on. And then he, Scott wrote what he thought was going on. It just goes through like week by oh, week. Wow. It's fucking cool. It was really good. Have you ever read uh, running with the Buffaloes? It was, it's exactly like running. With I was going to say, it's like, it's like running with the Buffaloes, but with an added dimension to it. Yeah. It's like running with the Buffalo is just the, the observer who's like writing the workout based on watching it. He's mm-hmm. not, the coach, he's not the athlete. He's a journalist. He's watching the thing. This is cool because it's, you know, it's the coach and the athlete and you get to see both kind of the, you get to come up with kind of a um, uh, unbiased portrayal of what's going on by watching both people and how they describe it. Exactly. And it's real honest. Right. And like it nails, like, of course it nails it because he's, he's doing it, but he's, he writes it. He writes the feeling of what it's like to train at a, a, a high level, like really relatable. And like, it's like really exciting to read and like be like, oh shit, like he's yeah. going after it. It was cool. Dude. What do you think caused more stress fractures? Um, running with the buffaloes or eating disorders? Because <laughs> I'm leaning towards running with the buffaloes. Probably percentage percentage based. The people who re- who read it versus yeah. people who are prone to eating disorders. I would say yeah. that's true. That's fair. I should go yeah. back and read. I haven't read it in. I, I read it in college, and I was like, "This is the greatest book I've ever read." So that's still in my mind as the greatest book I've ever read, but. I'm not, I'm not sure I've, I should go back and revisit it. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty brutal. But um, yeah, it was good. So cool, man. Right of passage. Totally. Um, well, dude, this was great. I really appreciate you take, taking the time. Where can, uh, where can people find you? There's the, the Chosky Collective. Chosky, I'm on there. Uh, I'm on the Instagrams, relatively findable. I don't necessarily recommend it, but I'm on there. Um, I don't know, man. You can Google me. I'm, you figure it out. It's fine. <laughs> Chris Brown runner with a K. So, yeah. yeah, actually, you know what, if you, if you, uh, so there was a professional football player, um, who spelled his name or with my name, who spelled it my way. Huh. And I currently, I think I am more represented on the first page of Google than him. Nice. Congrats. Which, was, which yeah, I, but Jeez. that could just, 
that could have to do with my search history and it might be yeah. for me, but <laughs> yeah, the, the Google uh, just knows you're Googling yourself. Yeah, yeah, like, well, he's Googling himself again. Show him his pictures. And I yeah. did that for, uh, I did that for woods. I was like, I, I searched Ryan woods, similar kind of, you know, not a crazy unique name. But you, um, you were the difference is you were doing image search. You were looking at Ryan woods and you were just trying to find him in some short shorts. And, that's all I wanted. Yeah, yeah. But it came up a soccer player, like a bring, like a British soccer player. There was no short shorts when I, when I well, that's, you must have turned safe search off. <laughs> went went incognito. Yeah. <laughs> um, sweet dude. Yeah. So I'll link. I'll link to your socials. We'll find. It, even though. All right. So if people really want. If people want to seek this out, they can. They can find you, man. So, dude. Again, I appreciate it. So we're signing off. I'll hit stop on this, but we'll stay on and. Okay. Uh, and that'll be that. So. Oh, well, you're the man. I appreciate it. All right. We'll sign off. We'll see you later. Yeah.